This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating. Today we'll be talking to Philippe Schlenker, author of What It All Means, Semantics for Almost Everything, published in 2022 by the MIT Press. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy, Philippe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So let's just dive in. Your book is Semantics for Almost Everything. What's the main argument, if you can encapsulate it, since you're talking about almost everything, um, and why do you think it's an important argument or topic to put out there? So I think it's easier to put this in historical perspective. Uh, In 1938, within logically inspired philosophy, Charles Morris uh, designed the program of a general theory of science Uh, linguistic science and non-linguistic science, human science and animal science. And the argument of the book in effect is that we're very close to realizing this program. We are beginning particularly on the meaning side to have a general theory of science and of meaning. uh, One that includes uh, linguistic science and non-linguistic science and animal science and human science. However, the way this program was developed within linguistics was very different from um, exactly what could be imagined in in 1938 because the program has relied on basically two revolutions that happened in linguistics. One was um, the uh, revolution of syntax, the idea of treating the uh, form of uh, sentences as a formal system. This was associated to the name of Noam Chomsky. And the second one was the idea of treating not just the form of sentences, but their meaning as a formal language. And this was associated with the name of the uh, uh, philosopher and logician Richard Montague. And so we are now after all these years, very close to having a general theory that includes spoken languages and sign languages, but also gestures and facial expressions, but also animal calls and animal gestures, and also music, and increasingly uh, pictures and even dance. So that's why the book is just about everything, almost everything gets gets incorporated. The almost remains important. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, So so what got you interested in the topic of this book in in semantics and uh, linguistics? So um, semantics for me was was a a very natural interest because I came from uh, philosophy. And uh, within analytic or Anglo-Saxon philosophy, a very key idea in the 20th century was that the logical analysis of meaning is essential to an understanding of the deepest questions in philosophy. And then semantics was in a way a scientific way to analyze meaning, combining ideas from philosophy and from, uh, and, and from linguistics. I was independently interested in languages. And so 
uh, that made semantics a very natural choice. But then the question is at some point, why, why should one uh, extend and expand semantics? And to me, the reason was that there were obviously interesting phenomena having to do with meaning outside of the traditional objects. And the other one was that the research program had been extraordinarily successful. It's, you know, the field is not well known, but uh, when you study semantics, you get this extraordinary thing that you start from this crazy idea, namely that you can study the meaning of natural languages as if they were formal languages, and you can study them with all the precision of mathematical logic, and it works. Of course, it's complicated, and of course, there's lots of debates, and of course, there's lots of complicated phenomena, but to me, coming particularly from philosophy, uh, this was an unbelievable success. And, but then I kind of realized that maybe the field had been a little bit too modest and that there were all these additional phenomena that could be studied as well and illuminated in the same way. And then the phenomena are a very different variety. So I mentioned sign languages. These are just now uh, entirely within the purview of uh, traditional linguistics. Every linguist agrees that you know, sign languages are full-fledged languages, extremely interesting. There's absolutely no debate about, uh, about, about their status, uh, but it was important to analyze them from the perspective of, of formal semantics as well. And then there were extensions to very, very different objects, which I mentioned at the outset. So a couple of questions here. So let's start with what you mean by semantics, um, because that term gets used in different ways in different contexts. Um, in the book, what do you mean by semantics? How are you using it? So semantics in general is the analysis of meaning. In the tradition I discuss, meanings are analyzed as truth conditions. So to know the meaning of, the sentence, of a sentence is at least to know under what conditions it would be true. So for instance, if I am in a soundproof basement, uh, you know, working very hard, uh, and um, I might not know whether the sense it's raining is true. So I don't know the truth value of the sense it's raining. However, I know what it would take for the sense to be true. In other words, I don't know its truth value, but I know its truth conditions. And really to convey information is to convey truth conditions. And this extremely simple idea lies at the heart of the very strong connection between semantics and logic, because the scientific field that studies truth and truth conditions is logic. So then you mentioned some successes that brought you to be interested in semantics. Can you, and we're, we're gonna get into this as we talk about your book, but uh, what are some of the successes that prompted you to be interested in this field when you said there were some successes of semantics? So one can maybe mention two examples. One was uh, the very um, intricate interaction between syntax, the form of sentences and meaning. Uh, so for instance, if I tell you, uh, someone lies to everyone, this can be interpreted in two ways. It could be that there is one person, a universal liar that lies to everybody under the sun. And then the more likely meaning is that for everybody, there is someone who lies to him or her. And an understanding of this ambiguity was one of the really extraordinary results of the program of both syntax and semantics working in tandem from the late 1970s and 1980s. Um, and there was a very compelling analysis of why such ambiguities come about. It, it's, a, it's pretty hard, you know, sometimes you get the ambiguity, sometimes you don't have it. Uh, but the, this program, in fact, this unification of syntax and semantics from the late 1970s and early 1980s delivered exactly this. That's one case, which is quite extraordinary. It's kind of interaction between syntax and semantics. And the other case 
is the interaction between semantics and pragmatics. The study of meaning per se, combined with the study of the additional motivations that speakers might have when they choose one sentence over another. And an example of this is if I tell you I'll invite John or Anne, you'll typically infer that I will invite one of them, but not both. And so you might think that or means one or the other, but not both. But then if you put um, John or Anne in a different environment, if you, I say, whenever I invite John or Anne, the party is a success. I make predictions about parties in which I invite them both. And so there is this kind of Janus face behavior of or, which sometimes seem to mean one or the other, but not both. And sometimes just means one or the other and possibly both. And this was another extraordinary success in the sense that this very, very hard, uh, very complicated behavior was analyzed by separating, by dividing the, 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 the work of producing meaning between semantics as we defined it, and an additional module of pragmatics whereby you reason on the speaker's intentions. And in this case, the idea is very simple. I tell you, I'll invite John Oran. This just means literally, I'll invite one or the other or possibly both. But if I had intended to invite them both, I would have used and. And it's because of this competition between or and and that you sometimes get this uh, meaning of disjunction, which has been called exclusive, one or the other, but not both. And so this is another, I think, success story, which, has also, which had all sorts of repercussions, including for the way children learn language, including for the way people process language. Great, thank you, that's very helpful. So let's, let's get into where you had, you start the book by talking about primate semantics. And, uh, you know, for some people, they might wonder, well, wait a second, does this mean that, that primates have languages? Um, in, in what sense do they have languages? And um, I've interviewed some other folks on this, this podcast that have things to say about this. It can be a, a hot topic, right, um, depending on how you understand the, the debate. Why do you start the book here? And what do you think about this question about whether animals have languages? Yep. So I started the book here because some um, animal communication systems, which I call animal languages in the book, I'll tell you why in a second, are simple enough that we can have the beginning of complete hypotheses about them. Complete hypotheses do not, does not mean correct hypotheses. It's a very hard field. And I'm very cautious in the book to say, you know, the more recent the results, uh, the more intense the debates and the more uncertain the results as well. But still, you have these tiny communication systems where you can state rules in great detail and say, well, there are two calls and they can be combined in such and such ways, et cetera. And so pedagogically, it's a very good way to get into the idea of having explicit and predictive models of any communication system. And then at this point arises the question, are you allowed to use the term language uh, to refer to these systems? And it's a matter of definition. And if you get bogged down in matters of definition, chances are this is not a very interesting issue. And so for years now, uh, my team and, and several other colleagues have made the choice of using the term language in an extremely weak sense. In fact, more or less in the sense that it is used in, in uh, formal language theory and mathematics. So kind of anything that uh, combines symbols of any sort, whether they have meaning or not can be called a language. That's not the issue. The issue is whether the communication systems that we find in animals or the animal languages that we find have anything like the properties of human language. Uh, so in other words, we're not interested in terminology, we're interested in really substantive issues. Are the properties the same? And I would say for the most part, no, the properties are not the same. And uh, the, the message that uh, I try to convey in the book is this, these are extraordinarily interesting systems but they should be studied for themselves. 
Uh, now, it's an open question whether there might be tiny areas of resemblance between some animal languages and human languages. I, I'm, I'm personally very, skept very skeptical, but I think that nonetheless, they're extraordinarily interesting. So for instance, we um, collaborated with a primatologist who had worked on Campbell's monkeys and had found something which is plausibly a case of a little suffix, the suffix oo in Campbell's monkeys, and it can be added to two separate calls. And analyzing the suffix oo is really fascinating. Uh, does it work like a suffix in human language? I mean, you know, probably not really. So this uh, is this suggesting then that there's something like uh, like animal syntax, that there's sort of principles of composition. What, what do you take this to be suggesting? Uh, absolutely. So there are principles of animal morphology, the rules by where you put two word parts together and form a new word. So from green, you can form greenish for something which is kind of green. And in a certain sense, in Campbell's monkeys, uh, you have uh, uh, a, a call for aerial predators, which is hawk, and you can form from this hawku, which is a kind of weakened version of the aerial predator call. I'm, I'm simplifying a tiny mm -hmm. bit. So there's a tiny bit of, of um, uh, morphology. Maybe there's sometimes a tiny bit of syntax, uh, rules by which you put not word parts, but words together. And we've been very interested in animal semantics, the study of uh, the meaning of these calls. And there's even possibly a little bit of animal pragmatics. So I mentioned the example of the competition between or and and, and we posited some principles pertaining to the competition between uh, some uh, specific calls in animals and some general calls. So you have all these things. And in some cases, you even find tiny similarities between animal languages and human languages. But when you look at the systems in their entirety, they are completely different systems. Uh, and so the choice to start from um, animal langu languages in, in, in the book was really to introduce to much simpler systems than ours, but where the general conceptual problems of semantics as a field and the distinction between morphology and syntax and semantics and pragmatics already arises, albeit in a very different form. So it's, it has a kind of a pedagogical role in, in your, your book's narrative then in terms of how you present it. I, I guess one follow-up question though is, do you think it's informative for us learning about human languages themselves to look at animal communication systems or languages or are they just so so distinct that you don't think we learn anything about human language by looking at animals? So there is a debate on this. Uh, so um, lots and lots of colleagues in primatology in particular, working on animal communication are interested in the evolutionary roots of human language. It's very hard because our uh, closest ancestors our closest relatives, I'm sorry, chimpanzees and bonobos share a common ancestor with us approximately 6 million years ago. That's a very long time. When you look at other animals like monkeys, uh, you have to go back in time uh, much, much further, you know, in, in the order of 20 million uh, years ago. So we're looking at a very, very different animals from us. And correspondingly, these evolutionary questions are very hard and I don't get into them. There is, however, one exception, which comes from work um, by Catherine Hobader and her group in St. Andrews on chimpanzee and more generally on ape gestures. So, so this was really, a, a, I think, an extraordinary series of findings. They found some communicative gestures, which are shared among the great apes. And in particular, they're shared among chimpanzees and bonobos and gorillas. Well, if they're shared among chimpanzees and bonobos of, and gorillas, well, we're part of the same, we're part of the same family. Um, and you would expect to find them 
in humans as well. And it was a mystery whether they could be found in, in humans. But there was work on this theme, work led by Karskin on the communicative gestures of human infants. And they found a large proportion of shared gestures with basically chimpanzees and other apes. In, in other words, it's in the neighborhood, they found something like approximately 89% of the ape gestures that they had found were found according to them in human infants as well. And so that's really a case in which the completely new problem, which comes out of studies of animal linguistics and uh, Hope Bader and her team have continued this research program is very interesting. They have a recent paper out. They basically tried to show not infant gestures, but uh, uh, ape gestures to adult humans and tested them to see whether they can understand them. And to some extent, they can understand them. This has to be uh, taken with a little bit of caution. This is very recent work. It's fascinating work, but it's, it's, it's all a little bit complicated to analyze. But, but that's a case in which this genuinely questions about human communication, specifically um, infant gestures, that is coming out of work on animal linguistics. Really interesting. That, that also leads us to another main theme in your book, which is about sign language and the semantics of sign language, which of course you argue is importantly different from, but related to gestures, like the gestures you've just mentioned. So I know there's a, a bit of machine maybe that we might need to understand these points, but let's just start with why sign languages are important to look at. I think a lot of times people think of linguistics and they think of spoken languages. Why are uh, sign languages important to look at and what do you argue about them in the book? So, so there was a, uh, there's a long history to this. Uh, historically, sign languages were repressed. Um, and, and this followed in particular for historical reasons, uh, something called the Milan Congress which took place in 1880 and essentially prohibited the use of sign languages in deaf education. And it was a complete disaster. Uh, sign language had thrived as a means of deaf education in, in, in earlier years, starting in basically the late uh, 18th century, uh, uh, early 19th century in France, and then in uh, many other countries, including the United States. So, so, so the first thing, for linguists was to come to grips with the fact that these had been repressed languages and that they had been, then they had to be uh, simply established in scientific research programs as uh, objects of study, just like any language. And, and there's a consensus of this. And you know, there's no doubt anyone who has studied sign languages, anyone who has used sign languages, anyone who has attended a talk with sign language interpreting realizes right away that of course, these are full-fledged languages. And of course you can express anything you need to express in sign languages. So this was the first step, but it was very important in linguistics to study them as full-fledged linguistic objects on a par with spoken languages. Uh, when it comes, the, the, the second step was to realize that sign languages were part of the same typology as uh, spoken languages. So for instance, there are uh, differences in word order across spoken languages, which were mirrored in differences in word order that you find across sign languages. Uh, when it comes to uh, semantics, the study of meaning, I think there were two specific contributions that sign languages made. Uh, I mean, of course, it was fascinating to study them because it, you know, I mean, give, link, give a linguist a new language. Uh, if, they're, if they're a good linguist, they, they're gonna be fascinated. So, so of course there was this, but, but there were two theoretical points that were uh, very important. So one was uh, the, structures that sign languages sometimes make visible, even though 
they are invisible in spoken language. So, of course, this isn't a rule. Uh, you know, spoken languages have a lot of unspoken structures, and sign languages have a lot of invisible structure as well. But there are cases in which very, very important components of the logical structure of spoken languages become visible in sign languages. And one case I mentioned is the issue of variables. So if, if, if I tell you Sarkozy told Obama that he would be elected, he is ambiguous. He can refer to Sarkozy or to Obama. Uh, and linguists have posited that there was an invisible symbol, a variable on he that disambiguates in the, in the speakers and hearers' minds. And lo and behold, sometimes in sign languages, you can make this variable visible. You sign Sarkozy on the left and you sign Obama on the right. Of course, that's just an example. And then you point towards the left or towards the right to mean he, depending on whether he means Sarkozy or Obama. So th this was a very important theoretical point that sometimes interesting aspects of the logical structure of languages in general happens to be made visible in sign language. And to me, uh, maybe the most important theoretical contribution is to realize that our notion of language was a little bit too narrow. So we used to think of language as essentially a discrete system uh, where you know you have a series of word or morphemes and, and you have some iconic phenomena on the fringes. Iconicity is the phenomenon whereby a sign resembles what it denotes. An example, in fact, from primate linguistics is boom. There is this called boom, which is called boom because that resembles a little bit the sound that the call makes. But what you find in iconicity is, it, what you find in sign languages is basically the same abstract grammatical and logical stru structure that you find in, in spoken languages, but with a much more systematic use of iconicity. And so that's, a, 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 I think, a, an interesting theoretical finding. Can you give an example of that? Absolutely. So uh, an example would be the word grow. Um, so in American Sign Language, there is a conventional word grow, like if you say my group grew. And you can also say, you know, my group grew a lot. You could add an adverb that means essentially a lot. Or you could use an adverb that means essentially quickly. But you can also do something else. You can modulate the word grow so that the sign will become larger or the sign will be produced more quickly if you refer to a growth phenomenon that led to a larger growth or that corresponded to a faster growth. So this is a case in which there's a conventional component and there is also uh, 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 an iconic component in the same time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you suggest that this happens in some ways in spoken languages, for instance, um, intonation or rate of speaking, things like that, but it's perhaps not as systematic or what's, what's the difference here between the spoken and the signed? Oh. Try, try again. We'll cut it out if we you, do. There we go. Perfect. This is an accurate point. You can find similar phenomenon. You can find similar phenomena in, in spoken language. An example in English would be the talk was long. It's one thing to say the talk was long. It's another thing to say the talk was long. The second one conveys that it was very long. And it is produced also by modifying modulating a conventional word. Now, the difference is that in spoken language, you're very limited to what you can represent with iconicity. In sign language, because the medium is visible, you can represent many more things iconically. I should also mention that there are specific expressions in sign language, which are currently the object of a lot of research, which are called classifiers, the name doesn't matter, which are even more radically iconic in the sense that they have a very tiny conventional component and a huge 
iconic component. And so for instance, there is a classifier for a vehicle could refer to a car or a bus or even a helicopter, but its movement in signing space is entirely free. You can move it in, in kind of crazy ways, but the movement will be interpreted iconically. So this will serve to give a representation of the movement, for instance, of a car, which will be interpreted relatively literally in terms of the path that you were able to trace in signing space. So it's, it's, a, it's a fairly radical difference at this point between, uh, you know, fr from what you would f uh, find in spoken language. You, you just mentioned uh, literal interpretation and earlier you were talking about the distinction between uh, semantics and pragmatics in the sense of the pragmatics that it involves inference. Um, is there pragmatics in sign language as well? What does, what does that look like? Um, there is absolutely pragmatics in sign language as well. There, there's a lot of uh, work on this topic. One of my uh, colleagues from Harvard, Catherine Davidson, who has done a lot of work on sign language semantics, in fact, worked on exactly this. Uh, the, the, the issue of the division of labor between semantics and pragmatics in sign language, particularly pertaining to the example I mentioned before, the word or. So there are certain complexities. It's not exactly the same thing as in English, it raises uh, uh, certain interesting questions. But yes, absolutely, there is pragmatics in sign language as there is in spoken language, and you'll find enormous similarities between the two. Interesting. So uh, let me sort of give a, ask a big picture kind of question. You've been talking about research in, in the book, you draw on a lot of different uh, I guess, disciplines and different approaches to research methodologies. How do you think about your research? How would you characterize what you do? Is it, is it empirical? Is it philosophical? What, what constitutes research for you, essentially? So I would characterize what I do as uh, both theoretical and empirical research. Um, I, I would not call it philosophical in the sense that it's part of uh, current science. In fact, semantics is part of linguistics, which is part of contemporary cognitive science. And a lot of progress has come from basically the integration of three um, strategies. Um, you know, it's, to a certain extent, you could call this the golden triangle. Uh, one is to start from very sophisticated intuitions or judgments about the form or meaning of sentences. So um, if I um, uh, tell you uh, Anne invited Mary, you know right away, even what, without an experiment, that this is a possible sentence of English. If I tell you invited Anne Mary, you know right away that this is not a possible sentence of English. And similarly for questions of meaning. So there's an enormous amount of data that you can get by introspecting if you're a native speaker or signer of a language, and sometimes by confirming this with friends and colleagues. So this has been historically one of the important sources of work in the grammatical tradition that goes back, you know, thousands of years. The second component of the golden triangle is the idea of coming up with completely explicit formal models of what happens. And so this is basically making the ideas from the grammatical tradition much more systematic. And that's the reason there is a convergence between the grammatical tradition where in grammar books, you would write very specific rules, but they were not totally explicit. You couldn't derive predictions about everything in the language from these rules. So there, there's a convergence between this and uh, basically the tradition of logic and formal language theory, which does, in, from, a, from a certain perspective, which gives you tools to do the same thing in a much more systematic fashion. And the third component of the, of, of the Golden Triangle is just experimental uh, psychology. So at some point, you need to either double check your initial results much more rigorously, particularly when uh, you know, data become uh, much more subtle, but also it's important to get new data. So I mentioned before, data about language acquisition. 
data about processing in real time, data about specific deficits that you have when certain areas of your brain are affected. And so the current field lies, I think, within this golden triangle, which combines uh, very, very rich introspective data, very explicit formal methods, and also rigorous experimental methods from uh, psychology, experimental psychology and psycholinguistics. Thank you. That's helpful. So it, one of the points that you mentioned there was the, about the the formality, the, or I should say formalizations rather, uh, of, of language. Um, in chapter eight of the book, you talk about English in a sense as being a formal language. And that's maybe to some people an interesting way of putting it because you might learn uh, distinction, right, between, well, there's natural languages and there are formal languages. So maybe you can unpack a little bit of what you mean by saying that English is a formal language uh, in the context of this book and why that's important. So the, 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 the chapter goes back to an article by the logician Richard Montague, which is English as a formal language. Of course, it's not just English. It's now <laughs> all the languages that we study, including spoken languages and sign languages. Uh, but, you know, the traditional, I, I, I should say, the, the, this was, to my mind, a revolution that happened in two steps. So in the 50s and 60s, Noam Chomsky had the idea of treating the form of uh, sentences as a formal language. He was not the only one. And for him, it wasn't just a formal system. It was a biological system as well. Um, but, but there was, among others, the idea that you could treat the form of uh, language, the form of sentences, syntax, as a formal system. And uh, then the second step, kind of associated with the name of Richard Monarchy, was to do the same thing for languages with a meaning. So that means essentially that we are aiming to come up with systematic rules that predict two things. What sequence of words is well-formed or ill-formed, acceptable or unacceptable? So I gave the example of Anne invited Mary versus invited Anne Mary. That's a very tiny syntactic fact. And the second uh, part of the goal was to have completely explicit systematic rules to predict the meaning of these sentences. For instance, the difference in meaning between Anne invited Mary and Mary invited Anne. And so that's the sense in which we treat um, uh, human languages as formal objects. And as mentioned, it's not because they're formal objects they're, that they're just formal objects. They are also biological objects. And that's the reason there is this very strong interaction between linguistics and psychology. That's helpful. So then thinking about sign languages, you would also want to say that sign languages themselves are subject to the same sort of formal analysis and would constitute formal languages in that sense as well. Absolutely. Um, but there is immediately a question. So you need to, of course, adapt your theories. Um, and as, as an example, um, my colleagues that work on sign language phonology have asked, well, what is the theory of the smallest units by which signs, by which signs are made? And, and they have found, of course, the smallest units are not going to be sounds. They're going to be articulatory units. And people are very surprised when you tell them there is a phonology of, of sign language, of course, because they associate phonology to sound. Uh, but in fact, even when it comes to spoken language phonology, a very old idea that was even the dominant idea in the 1970s was that the way we mentally represent the sounds of language is by way of the articulatory orders that we give to our articulatory system. So for instance, uh, the sound p differs from the sound b uh, in terms of where the vocal folds do, whether they vibrate or not. 
And both sounds, both consonants are produced with ellipse. And so you can find the commonalities between them, the lips, and the difference between them, whether the vocal folds vibrate. But already at this point, you see that the way we encode linguistic sounds according to phonology, it's, it's current theories are a little bit more complicated than this, but the, the basic idea is still correct. The way we represent linguistic sounds is by way uh, of these uh, uh, orders to the articulatory system. And you see that if this is the way we encode spoken sounds, of course, it's in principle, you can do the same thing for what your hands do and what your facial expressions do. And that has been the, the topic of sign language phonology. And then from this, you can see that you can build the same kind of system as you do in spoken languages. So, so th that's the huge commonality between them despite uh, certain differences. So in, in um, articulating speech, we might uh, vocally, we might think about things like aspiration, we might think about points of articulation, things like that. What are some of the analogous uh, features that we might be attending to for a sign language where we're looking for the presence or the absence that is maybe meaningful in terms of uh, meaning conveying. So uh, the so you will typically have uh, similar properties with uh, certain aspects of hand movements, for instance. So it's a little bit too difficult to display in a non-visual <laughs> non fashion, but I, I discussed basically in the appendix to the book, various examples of exactly this, uh, just like B and P differ by just one feature, which is what the vocal folds do. I discuss examples from sign language phonology in which two signs differ by just one manual feature. Uh, there are also uh, of, of further examples of, you know, at least small uh, distinctions uh, of the same sorts. Some of them uh, very, very important uh, for the semantics, which is, for instance, whether you raise your eyebrows or do not raise your eyebrows. And um, eyebrow raising is often one of the means of emphasis that you can find, for instance, in questions that you can find even to highlight, strengthen the meaning of an expression. So for instance, I gave at the start the example, uh, I will invite John or Anne. If I tell you I, I will invite John or Anne, this strengthens the meaning that it, it will not be both of them that I will invite. And in sign language, you can do the same thing in part by raising your eyebrows uh, on the, the word or. So are these the kinds of things that you're talking about when it, at a certain point in the book, you, you talk about how natural languages are, they're, they're structured. And so we can look at them in, in terms of their similarities to things like predicate logic, but they're more expressive. Um, and um, you also seem to, you argue that they're helpful for our, our reasoning. So. I'd like you to maybe unpack this a little bit with both spoken language and, and, and maybe sign language too, if you can. Um, what is it that these languages are doing that's more expressive and how is this helpful, not you know, a distraction? Why shouldn't we just try and distill everything down into predicate logic and, <laughs> and think that yeah, way? Thank you. No, that's an important question. So this goes back to a research program from the, the early 1980s that was developed in all sorts of direction. Once uh, one treated the meaning of English and other languages as a formal language, the question was, how does it compare to certain mathematical languages that, we, that we're used to? And one such mathematical language, which is used all over the place, is predicate logic. So it includes things like and or not, but it also includes things which are called quantifiers. For something X, it is the case that blah, or for everything X, it is the case that blah. And it's a very expressive system. And you might think that uh, this suffices to analyze meaning in natural language. And this was a very natural idea. 
Bet was proven wrong. It was proven wrong because natural language has in particular some additional quantifiers. So it has, it has very much things like for something X and for everything X, you know, some and every, but it, it, it also has things like for most things X. And in fact, it has something even a, a little bit more complicated, not just for most things X, but uh, most stars are bright not just most things in the world, but most stars. And when you look at the, detail, at the details of these um, quantifiers, they, not only are they different in their form from what you find in predicate logic, but they could not even be defined in terms of what you find in predicate logic. So you can take a very, very complicated formula from predicate logic. It could be as complicated as you want it to be. It will never give you exactly the same meaning as most. And, and the word most exists, the counterparts of the word most exist uh, typically in American Sign Language, for instance, or in French Sign Language. So this then suggests we that, that sort of projects which try and uh, reduce natural languages to formal languages and sort of uh, identify formal languages like predicate logic or, or others as uh, preferable for, for engaging in, in thought are, are, in some sense, fundamentally misguided, then, would you suggest? So yes and no. They're going to be fundamentally misguided for some of them, and they're not going to be misguided for others. Because the very idea that we treat natural languages as formal languages means that among these formal languages are going to be ones that are exactly the right ones. And so in, in the example I gave you, in a way, I only mentioned half of the results. The, the, it was the negative half, namely that you cannot reduce uh, the, the meaning of, of a word like most to predicate logic. But the positive result is that you can define a formal system that has exactly the right meaning. And so these would be good candidates to analyze not just languages, but possibly even the way we think. And there is a very vibrant movement right now, which studies essentially what psychologists call the language of thought. And it has very interesting relations to semantics because people posit certain formal systems that we could not observe directly, but which, according to psychologists, are the systems that we use to reason. And at this point, yes, this is, from a, from a more abstract perspective, this is the same program. And in fact, some of my colleagues contribute to both programs. They contribute to the analysis of the meaning of natural languages, and they contribute to the analysis of the language of thought. Understood. Let's let's shift gears a little bit. Um, you talk also about meaning in music. I, I, I mean, um, seems pretty clear you're not going to be arguing that we can uh, formalize symphonic music into um, predicate logic or something like that. Uh, what do you mean when you say that music has has meaning? Um, and so here I'm thinking about the different categories we've already uh, discussed, things like semantics and pragmatics, um, inferences, implicatures, syntax. In what sense do we want to say that music has meaning? Are there are there pragmatic implicatures, sort of Greian implicatures going on here? What What's happening? So the basic idea is to really analyze specifically the semantics of, of music. We, we leave kind of pragmatics for later because yeah. it's, it's harder. Yeah. And this became a natural idea to ask because there had been extraordinary work conducted basically in, in the early 1980s by a composer and music theorist, uh, Fred Leardal, who teamed up with a linguist, Ray Jackendorf, and, and they delivered, they produced an extraordinary analysis of the syntax of basically classical Western music. So the idea of a syntax of music with very, very explicit rules was already present. And then the next question was, is it the case that music is just a syntactic system and it doesn't have meaning or can it convey meaning? And what I argued in, in really fairly recent work, and so as, as I mentioned, the more recent the results, the more de debated they are, is that music does have meaning. It does have a semantics in the usual sense, 
in the sense that it conveys information about the external world, but the way meaning is produced is completely different from uh, uh, semantics in, in human languages. The way semantic, the way meaning is produced is basically by recycling certain mechanisms of uh, normal audition. So for instance, if uh, you hear a very, very low pitched sound, you might imagine that it's produced by a large object, maybe by an elephant, rather than by a very, very small object, like a small bird, for reasons have, having to do with the physics of sound. And so, so there is a certain sound distinction, which is associated to different inferences. And the idea is that music makes systematic use of these means to produce meaning. Some of them are just lifted from normal auditory cognition. Some of them really interact with specifically musical phenomena like scales and dissonance and consonants. Uh, so so there, there are many examples of that sort. So for instance, uh, if the loudness of an object goes down, it could be that it's losing energy, or it might be that it's moving away. And so I argue that this inference is found in music as well. Um, and similarly, um, um, if, you know, in, in, in nature, higher frequency is associated with greater speed. And so from the fact that um, a, a musical sound, uh, a note is higher than another, you might get the inference that something is somehow gaining energy. And I'm trying, I basically try to put all of these inferential means together. And I argue you that we have the beginning of a systematic semantics for music. It's not produced at all in the same way as meaning is produced in human language. There are no words that you put together to get new meanings. And the result is something extremely underspecified. Uh, so these are very, very general meanings. And if you're interested, I can, I can say something about the, the challenge that was raised for the idea of a music semantics by, by Bernstein, which was exactly that it's in a way to underspecify to make sense. So, yes, please, so, please. so, so Bernstein, um, the, the Leonard Bernstein, who was a, really an extraordinary composer and conductor, um, had a series of programs that made music history uh, for, for a very long time in, in the 60s and 70s called the Young People's Concerts. Absolutely delightful to watch. And one of them was entitled, What Does Music Mean? And he wanted to argue that music does not tell you anything about the external world. Uh, the meaning of music is just the emotions that it licenses in the person who hears, hears it. And so that seems to be to go against what, what I told you. And in order to make the challenge clear, he took a piece uh, which was uh, uh, Variations by uh, Richard Krauss. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, I'm going to tell you the wrong story. Mm. Um, so he picked a story. The, the original story was about Don Quixote. Don Quixote leaving to conquer the world. Bernstein told a wonderful story about Superman. Uh, 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 basically going to prison to free one of his friends. And he picked the Richard Strauss piece and bit by bit told his audience the wrong story. And it worked beautifully well. And he said, well, there you have it. Richard Strauss had tried to tell a story about Don Quixote uh, uh, departing to conquer the world. I, Leonard Bernstein, told you the wrong story, um, namely about Superman, and the wrong story worked just as well as the correct story. So how could meaning tell you anything about the external world? And so it seemed to be a reductio of the idea that music can convey meaning about the external world. But when you put side by side the Superman story and the Don Quixote story, they're completely isomorphic. They have exactly the same structure. 
And what they preserve is exactly the very abstract features that you can get from uh, the examples that I mentioned. So for instance, at some point, you know, there is something dissonant, which is coming closer. And you can see in the music that there are dissonances and something is coming closer. And the interpretation is that there is something chaotic that, you, uh, that either is coming uh, closer to you or, the, or you're, 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 you're getting closer to the source of the chaos. And this is something that you find both in the Superman story that Leonard Bernstein told uh, and in the Don Quixote story that uh, uh, Richard Strauss had in mind. That's, that's really interesting. Um, I have lots of questions about that, but we are... We're, we're running out of time, so let me at least move to the, the last bit of the book, which is your, your epilogue. So this is just going to bring us back to the idea of truth and paradoxes. Um, and so you talk about paradoxical statements. Um, why do you cap off the book with this discussion? How, how do you think this is important for understanding language and semantics more specifically? So, so I think it's um, in a way going full circle. So the idea of analyzing truth, of analyzing meaning in terms of truth, owes a lot to the philosophical and logical tradition. And everything in the book owes a lot to the idea of that we can define truth, which is an, an idea that goes back to the logician, Alfred Tarski. And so Going full circle, uh, we go back to one of the hardest problems for this research program, namely uh, logical paradoxes. Uh, it's also interesting that there is this convergence between uh, basically ideas from philosophy and logic and ideas from linguistics. So why are paradoxes a problem? Well, if I tell you that the analysis of meaning is reducible to the analysis of truth conditions, you have to be able to assign truth conditions to sentences. But what are the truth conditions of a paradox such as this very sentence is false, right? If it's true, it should be false. And if it's false, it should be true. And so that's the reason it's a challenge. Uh, but, but what's extraordinary is that there have been very sophisticated answers proposed um, in uh, philosophical logic and, and particularly by the philosopher and, and logician Saul Kripke in the 1970s. And so I wanted to give the reader a taste of how sophisticated these theories can be. And so I really tried to explain in the last chapter, which is a, probably a bit more demanding than the others, how the solution can work. And, and the basic idea of the solution is we need more truth values than we thought. We, we thought that we could get away with just true and false, but sometimes some sentences, typically paradoxical sentences, have a third truth value, neither true nor false. It's just the beginning of the solution, but I try to sketch exactly how it works because I think it's independently interesting and has all, all sorts of very surprising uh, consequences. So I, I, as an example, so that's really an idiosyncrasy of the book, but, but one that I, that I like, I discussed at some point the potential consequences of the fact that there are more than two truth values for the analysis of very famous philosophical arguments. And I, I, I mentioned in particular uh, a proof of the existence of God due to Ansel. And I say, well, it seems to be cogent, but one possible analysis of why it is in fact erroneous has to do with the fact that there are more truth values than meets the eye. So. The, it, it's, it's also hopefully independently interesting and fun. Great. Well, thank you. I've taken up a lot of your time. I've had a great talk, but um, let's close things off by asking what you're working on now that the, the book is out. So I mentioned earlier that we need some adjustments when we discuss um, uh, sign language. I gave the examples. I, I gave the example of sign language phonology. Uh, but of course, I'm working on semantics, and I mentioned iconicity. I men mentioned these cases where a classifier uh, is is very, very free in its movement. You can move it in all sorts of positions in signing space, and it's going to be a pictorial representation of the movement of a car in the case of a vehicle classifier. And so, the challenge that I've been trying to address 
is how to systematically unify this pictorial component with the logical and grammatical component that uh, we find. This is all part of collaborative work with uh, Jonathan Lamberton, who is a native deaf signer of American Sign Language. And so what we've been trying to do is to say, okay, it's now taken for granted that sign languages have the same grammatical and logical structures as spoken languages. In some cases, these structures are more overt in sign language than in spoken language. In some cases, they're not more overt. But the challenge is to systematically handle this iconic or pictorial component. And so what I've tried to do was to come up with a more expressive system that unifies the logical and grammatical component that we know with the pictorial component. And I'm building here on very important work that is done by my colleagues who work on the semantics of pictures. Uh, there are several colleagues that do fascinating work on this, particular Gabe Greenberg and Dorita Abush, and they didn't intend their work to apply to language. But as it turns out, when we look at the full extent of iconic phenomena in language and particularly in sign language, we absolutely need to take this pictorial component into account and embed it within a grammatical and logical component. And I should note, we did not get to talk about the semantics of images, but that is also something that is in in the book. So mm -hmm. listeners can can take a look at that if they want to. Well, Philippe, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Enjoy the conversation. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for taking the time.